that comes. It's Nashville Untold with Andrew Buckwalter, the podcast that interviews the most interesting and influential people making an impact on Nashville's business, charitable, and entertainment scenes. Joining us now from his roving camper studio, here's Andrew. Welcome to episode 46 of Nashville Untold, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Today in The Rambler, I host Amanda Williams. I've been a pro songwriter, I guess about 15 years. Started out with Sony as a writer there, the co-pub under my dad and Sony, and then I had Beer Run came out, and that was like, oh wow, this is easy. I had a big hit, you know, and then it's not quite so easy, especially when you have one quick like that. I think that throws people off. She is an awarded singer, songwriter, entrepreneur with songs on albums certified at 17 million sales by the Recorded Industry Association of America. As daughter of Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame member Kim Williams, noted songs Three Wooden Crosses by Randy Travis and Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up by Garth Brooks. Williams has experienced two generations of the music industry firsthand. Upon graduating college in Boston with a magna cum laude degree in music business and management, she returned to Nashville to pursue her career in 1999, the year Napster turned the industry on its head. Amanda owns three successful businesses, including a private events venue in Nashville called the 7695, an educational and consulting resource for songwriter entrepreneurs called Songpreneurs and her multi-platinum certified music publishing company, Hillbilly Culture, LLC. Amanda is regularly called upon as a non-attorney copyright expert for events, including United States Patent and Trademark Office, Copyright Seminar, America's Small Business Development Center, Annual Conference, American Music Festival Conference, and universities worldwide. In 2018, Amanda was tapped by the U.S. Department of State to launch a pilot program combining arts envy diplomacy with intellectual property education called Arts Envy IPR, which completed its inaugural trip to Romania in December. That was a handful. I'll never know who I will be interviewing sometimes. I know of them, but I don't know everything they're about. So uh, even diving into the interview, I'm sometimes amazed. Obviously, as you listen to this, there's a lot of uh, a lot of artist names drop. As she said, she's been in the industry for a, a couple of decades, so she's been around some famous people. Anyways, we had a great time. As you could tell, she's also a great storyteller, and it was cool because after I did the interview, I hung out at a at this uh, songpreneur conference she had. Um, where she actually performed several songs, and you'll be able to hear one of her songs she sings at the end of the podcast, and uh, that's just a little taste of the voice she has. Um, it's pretty pretty awesome. Anyway, so hopefully you will enjoy this as much as I did hanging out and getting to know her. And as mentioned, the last couple podcasts, I am a realtor in Nashville, and I put together a little ebook if you're looking at getting your credit score up, looking at purchasing a home. Um, in the near future, it's uh, a few questions to help you get prepared for that process. So make sure to check out the show notes for more details on that. And now sit back and enjoy getting to know Amanda Williams. Hello, Nashville. Today, I am hanging out in West Nashville. 
and I'm hanging out with songwriter, producer, songpreneur. She can give a couple other titles. Um, Amanda Williams. Yeah. So thanks for joining me in the Rambler. Thank you. And we're hanging out in West Nashville at, what's this place called? The 7695. 7695. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess let's start out with just tell me what excites you to get out of bed each morning. Gosh, that's a good question. Really what excites me to get out of bed is my vocation. You know, it's more than just a profession when it's a vocation. It's a calling. And so for me, helping songwriters and other creative people find their passion and really helping them to identify what their uniqueness is. Mm -hmm. It seems like so many of us, we doubt ourselves, you know, especially creative people. We've we we have these kind of two sides of us. One side's like extremely confident and out there doing its thing. And the other side is like terrified that you know, what if they hate me or what if my stuff's not that good or what if, what if, what if. And so my job is, I, I kind of think of it's like the songwriter whisperer hmm. because I wake up every morning and, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's always something new to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to learn all these different skills. I laugh with folks about all the different skills that I've acquired just trying to be a professional songwriter the past 20 years. But... um but that's what gets me out of bed is just love, you know, mm-hmm. loving what I do, loving my family, loving my friends, and really being purposeful about it. Yeah, that's awesome. Great answer. Thanks. All right, so let's uh, let's start out going uh, back to the early years. Um, where'd you grow up, and what are some fond memories that come to mind before you hit your teen years? Well, I grew up in East Tennessee, up in a little town called Rogersville. It's the second oldest town in Tennessee, and um, Davy Crockett's grandparents are buried in Rogersville, which is pretty cool. So I grew up learning about the the history of this great state of Tennessee, and we had one whole year of history dedicated to Tennessee history. I think that's common in the states. Each state's got mm-hmm. its own um, historical time frame and, and its accolades that it's really proud of, and it's, it's people. And so I grew up really just... Thinking about that, looking up to Dolly Parton, who's also from East Tennessee, looking up to the the wonderful music in the family. My dad's side, pretty much everybody that was around at that time played an instrument. And uh, I started watching him. And I was pretty much a daddy's girl, I think, pretty much all my life. And my dad was a songwriter. But it started out, he was a disabled construction worker when I was little. He'd been burned 60% of his body in an mm-hmm. industrial fire in 1974. And so when I came along a few years later, I was kind of like the apple of his eye, you know. Mm-hmm. And everybody else that looked at him, he would see the reflection of this kind of horror in their eyes when they'd look mm-hmm. at this man wow. with scars. But me as a child, I just that's my daddy. That's all I never knew. So we had a really unshakable bond because of that probably and then later through mm-hmm. our writing. So... He um, he was my everything. And when he started coming to Nashville in my middle school years, which is hard on any young person, um, it, it really became apparent that, that the songwriting was something very important to him because I knew if he was leaving us in East Tennessee coming to Nashville for something, mm-hmm. it had to be important. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at that, and, and I think that was part of my formative time is that uh, really learning how to 
do without something you love so much. Mm-hmm. It was my dad, you know. But I think it was a, it was a good formative time. I had a lot of wonderful memories of growing up in the woods and kind of running free in East Tennessee back in those days and and listening to everything from Elvis to B.J. Thomas to Dolly to even some Janis Joplin a little bit in mm-hmm. the early years. And Hank Williams Sr. started playing piano. And uh, pretty soon we were down here in Nashville. And it was teenage time. Okay. So um, as you entered your teen years, how did your environment and family begin to shape who you are even more? Well, when we moved down here from East Tennessee, I was entering the eighth grade. And I went from a tiny little school in the beautiful town of Rogersville, which was pretty isolated and not a whole lot of different influences there in the town, to down here in Nashville. I went to university school in Nashville, which is very diverse. Where's that at? It's right down there on Edge Hill, right down by Music Road. It's across from Vanderbilt. And I believe it may be affiliated with Vanderbilt now. It used to be affiliated with Peabody Demonstration School, which I think got incorporated into Vanderbilt later. But um, it was neat because a lot of my friends, it came from being East Tennessee and really all kind of Protestant white kids to play with to coming Mm -hmm. down here. And some of my best friends early on were a, a couple of Jewish girls and a couple of black girls and then a a Japanese girl and some Italians. And I was just loving it because Mm -hmm. I was able to learn from them about their cultures. Mm -hmm. I remember my first uh, sleepover party I had when we moved here and all of these girls were over and and my mom made biscuit and gravy, which is a normal (laughs) East Tennessee thing. And the Japanese girl especially was looking at it like, what is this? Like so gross. And we laughed. We're like, what do you eat for breakfast? She's like rice and soup, and we were like, wow, it's so weird and cool, you know. (laughs) So it was just a learning experience here, Mm -hmm. and it was really, it opened up my eyes, and they teased me about my accent here. Do you have an accent? Like I don't know. I don't think so, but no, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, I come here, and and I'm talking, and sometimes I'm like, did I lose? Because I'm from Arkansas. Yeah. I'm like, no, I got an accent, too, I'm sure. You know it's bad when they show your kind of people on TV, and they've got (laughs) subtitles, and you're talking English, you know. But um, but it, it was great, you know, the teenage years. And it's not easy for anybody to be a teenager. I think mm-hmm. that's probably the also some of the hardest times, middle school, teenage years, and uh, especially moving somewhere new. And then also exploring yourself as an individual, as an only child and as a daddy's girl. Sometimes you get, uh, I think I've, I've learned this as I've gotten older, You've always got issues with between ladies in the house. There's an old saying, there's no house big enough for two women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that is something I learned, too, as I got a little bit more into my teenage years. You start learning what it means to be a woman and how that relates you to your other women in your life, mm-hmm. your mother, your grandmother, your aunts. And, and so that was something that was interesting. Do you have and, siblings? No. Okay. No. Nope. I was the only child. So uh, I got, you know, deep friendships because of that. Mm-hmm. And then my grandma, my grandma Manus was like my, I think, guardian angel. She was something else, tell the most bawdy stories, you know, sing these old songs and stuff. But she was a character, too. She was her daddy fought in the Civil War, which most of the time it'd be like three or four generations back. But he was East Tennessee which most people don't know, but East Tennessee seceded from Tennessee in the Civil War. We actually went with the North mm. because it was just different topography. So 
we were, a lot of the folks up there were with the North. And then, of course, just down here, a few miles down the road was the Confederacy. And so Grandma grew up in what is now Big South Fork Park up in Oneida area of East Tennessee. And she was abandoned at the state fair as a young person because her daddy, when she was born, was 76 years old. Mm. And her mama was 16 years old. Oh, my gosh. Fourth wife of this man, Hamilton Griffith, was my great-grandfather. Fought in the Civil War. He was an herbal doctor, a census taker, and and from all accounts, a decent man, you know, a really good man. And up in those days, you know, that sounds terrible. Nowadays, you go to jail for something like that. Um, But back in those days, the parents looked for somebody to take care of the girls because that's just the way it Mm. was. And um, so they found this good husband for the daughter. And then, of course fertile years Mm -hmm. so my granny was born and then her brother fred and they were abandoned at the state fair and it took them uh i think five years after that to find each other both raised in foster homes after their daddy died because their mama couldn't care for them Mm. so i started learning all this family history as a teenager yeah you know when you're a kid they don't tell you that stuff so you had a lot of great songs to write, right? Right. Oh yeah i actually wrote one with brandon rickman of the lonesome river band about my grandma manus Mm called we couldn't tell mm. and it's talking about the depression years mm-hmm. and she actually told me that story she said they can they was talking about i guess the, i don't know who she was talking about they you know this mm-hmm. this person this they but for, folks from the city probably the tva time and she said they came and told us that we was poor and she just laughed she said <laughs> we wasn't poor we had beans in the garden and a hog in the lot and we was rich she thought they were dumb because she said, just because we didn't have a worship machine, they thought we was poor. And I just thought that was cool of her attitude and her yeah, her outlook. Her I perspective, mean, right? An orphan, seriously, an orphan abandoned at the state fair mm. or the county fair. I don't know which fair. Mm-hmm. And then to go from that to that, that shiny outlook. So that really taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. And then that, that difference between the, the dad side of the family, which was very intellectual and you know, everybody was book smart. And then on the other side, it was all this like spirituality smarts. Mm. So that was kind of neat. Yeah. Balance each other out. Um, all right. So as high school came to an end, what were your plans and did you accomplish them? Well, I was in, uh, I guess, junior year of high school, something like this. And dad was winning some awards as a songwriter. My dad was Kim Williams. So he's now inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Awesome. And he was riding with Garth Brooks. I actually mm-hmm. met Garth when I was nine. When we first started coming down here. Where'd you, my curious, dad. where'd you live when you moved here as a teen? Well, uh, we first moved to Green Hills. Okay. Dad got a townhouse. It was within a mile or two of Music Row. We moved there. Uh, and then when he started getting his hits, we moved out to Brentwood. Okay. In a really nice house out there. Uh, right down the road, it was actually the same street as George Jones. And Ronnie Dunn was both our neighbors on the same street. And uh, so when when the the hits started happening, you know, we're going to these number one parties and things. And there was mm-hmm. this gal, this lady at ASCAP named Pat Roth. She's not with there anymore. She's uh, retired now. But she said, uh, Mandy, um, you ever heard of Berkeley College of Music? And I said, no, I never heard of it. Because I was looking at Juilliard. I'd studied piano all my life and classical trained and all this. And I wanted to do music, but I didn't know about Mm -hmm. I just thought music was, you know, the classical stuff. So 
she uh, she said, you ought to look at Berkeley. So I did, and I found out they had this five-week program in the summer. And so here I am. I guess I was 16, and I got uh, Dad and Mom, and they took me up there to Boston and left me for the summer up there. And boy, I had a good time. I bet. I just had a good time up there. And I thought, well, this is it. This is what I want to do. So after graduation, and it was funny because when I got back, a couple of my other friends were uh, – we're going too. So I actually had a couple of buddies up there with me. One of them, I should have known that Berkeley existed before because he went. And he's about, I guess, four years older than me, Nick Buddha. And he's a drummer all over town. He's played on everybody from, well, Taylor Swift's albums and things like that. Mm-hmm. So he's around town. And then uh, when it came our time to graduate, me and a buddy, Quentin Bradley, went up to Berkeley. And then several other folks too. So it was neat. We went up there and... So in the five weeks, you were able to get a degree? No, I got okay. that certificate. And then okay. when I finished up high school, went back up there and uh, and got my four-year degree. Okay. And I studied music business and management. And I did take a few so- classes from the songwriting instructors, too. I took some mm-hmm. poetry classes from Pat Pattison, who's great. And um, Ann Dolan was my vocal teacher. Had some really wonderful characters. This guy, Tibor Putski from Hungary was my conducting teacher. He was the conductor for the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. And uh, just a great experience. Mm-hmm. I bet. So not, not didn't look at Belmont at the time? You know, I just kind of wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. My dad, he always encouraged me to live. He'd say, get out there and live, Williams. And um, I did. You know, I think he thought that made for good songwriting, which I think yeah, it does. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Um, I mean, experiences um, create a lot of songs, obviously, right? Right. Uh, my wife and I, we went to Boston for my 40th um, three-day trip. Uh-huh. I think it was three or four. And it was like, she wanted to plan the whole thing. I said, it's my birthday. I was like, we're, yeah. just, we're not planning. Wake up. All right, let's do this. And it was so fun. Where'd you stay? We stayed at the Buckminster okay. Hotel. Yeah. You know where it is? What, what street's it on? I don't remember. Maybe Buckminster. I don't know. <laughs> it was like, it was down from... Mm. Okay, so I know it was really close where there's this big old Sitco sign, I believe. Yeah. You know, okay, yeah. Somewhere over there. Mm-hmm. But we walked over. That was what was so awesome. I the wish walking, we had that yeah. here. Yeah, it's you like we walk. flew in and we didn't step into a car. That's we neat. We just took the subway everywhere and right. went to the, uh, um, actually, I, I, we went to a place across from the, uh, the um, Boston Red Sox Stadium. Cool, yeah, Fenway. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I had to think, make sure I got it all set right. But we went to a place there, and then we took the tour. Neat. And so we're walking around, and and we had a couple beverages beforehand, and they're like, "If you need to get a restroom, go now." Yeah. And I was like, "How oh, would we good? We'll get halfway in the tour, and I needed to pee like, really bad." And the guy's like, ah, you could check over here, and I checked, and there it was still locked, you know. And uh-huh. so I walked by a water fountain. I thought for a second. I'm like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> but uh, but I was, but afterwards, I thought, man, I should have. That'd been a good thing to say. I was like, oh yeah, I was at Finway and I peed in one of their water. Yeah, oh my gosh. But it was the like I love just all the history. Oh and, yeah. Uh, that's a really cool city. So I it's I neat. actually when we went we went to Cape Cod um, like I don't know twelve or thirteen years ago. And we did a day trip in Boston, cool. and we like literally walked the whole Freedom Trail and everything. In oh one yeah, day. and uh, we're like, this would have been a really cool place to come after college, you know? Oh yeah. So I can imagine. Going it was to college awesome. There, two hundred fifty thousand students during that time. It's probably more now. 
mm-hmm. which is about, at that time anyway, is about half the population of the city. Mm-hmm. So you got half students running around. And you could tell it, too, because I started, I quickly figured out that being a Tennessee girl, I was there for the first year. I got up there in September when they started school, and I lasted up through. It was the day that we left for Christmas break, which is in December, and a blizzard came, like nor'easter, they call it. And it was ridiculous. Awesome, actually. It was so cool. The snow was like up to my waist. Mm. And me and my gal friend were running around outside just because we'd never seen anything like it. And I got to thinking, Williams, you better go to the airport and get out of here because you won't get out of here if you don't. So I thought, well, I'm just going to do one of those things where I go and try to stand by out of here. So I did. And thankfully I did because they did shut down that airport mm. and I got back here to Tennessee. And then I went ahead and went back in the uh, next semester, which is spring. And that is actually what we call winter here. We go January through like whatever it is, May, and that's Mm -hmm. a pretty long time. So what I really quickly figured out was I got to have a certain number of credits. I got to do it in a certain amount of time. Why don't I just go summer, fall, summer, fall and come home January through May and Mm -hmm. do that thing. So that's what I did. And so I really kept my friendships here and I was able to do internships here Interned for my dad's company, who by then was doing a, so, a, a co-publishing deal with Sony. My dad first got his first publishing deal at uh, Tree International, which is what they called it back then. Now it's called Sony mm. uh, ATV, or actually now it's plain old Sony. I think they sold the ATV part. Mm. But what was so cool about it was that, and really this is the model that I took to begin our community here, our songpreneurs group, because... It was neat. You know, the writers, they'd bring their wives, husbands, they'd bring their family, and we would have picnic days and Christmas parties. And, you know, Donna Hilly was my uh, dad's mentor. She took over there and was really, she's Alabama Music Hall of Fame, studied under Buddy Killen, great song man, just incredible individual. And I got to be friends with Donna's daughter, was a couple years younger than me in high school. And um, it's just a big family. Paul mm-hmm. Worley and his daughter, she's about my age, and uh, we hit it off. And we were put one time at one of the Sony parties. They had uh, all the kids there. We were all there, and we found out that we were having this picture. It was in Billboard magazine, and they had all the kids do it. And so me and Ashley got to hold the babies. That's cool. And I found out later that I was holding uh, Gary Nicholson's, I guess, youngest mm. kid. And you just kind of, it is, it's a big family. And, right. The guys, you know, then it's not about who you write best with either as much as who does my family get along with, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of neat. And that's the way that we are here. A lot of times these folks that are coming back year after year to our songpreneurs events, they say it's a family reunion. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. how I feel about yeah. Nashville. Yeah. So it's And I hear cool. that over and over in, in music and like all the different industries of different mm-hmm. people have interviewed. It's like we're all here to kind of help and lift each other up, encourage, yeah. you know, not so much of the competition, right. you know, as they've said other areas are like. So that's cool. Yeah. Sounds like you got to, I mean, you increase the, even probably the networking zone experience coming back to Nashville, but then you got to even experience more culture and right. Boston and learn right. all that, like kind of got the best of both worlds. Yeah, Boston was great. And my classes there, you know, when you have a degree program at a school like that, you learn a lot of the trade, but then you learn a lot of that kind of open culture, like you mm-hmm. said. I, mm-hmm. I had the one most wonderful teacher for art history. His name Henry Tate, and he was the curator at the Museum of Fine Art there in Boston. 
amazing storyteller. I learned so much from that class. Nothing to do with music. And he would bring a little music in, you know, because music history and art history go hand in hand. And mm-hmm. um, But it was neat. It was just a great time. And then learning all that. And then I was in a metal band in Boston. Metal, I guess you'd call it goth metal. Called All the Queen's Men. We toured all over the Northeast and came down here to Nashville playing at the NEA Extravaganzas. And what, what was your singer? Or I was the lead singer and the and the rhythm guitar player, which our lead guitar player really taught me to play guitar. I give her mm. big props for that. Catherine Capozzi, she's still up there in Boston doing her thing, and she's amazing. And um, yeah, we toured all over. And then when I got done with college, moved back here to Nashville and really. Kind of took a little time, and and then Dad really started pushing me into all right, figure it out, Williams. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, coming here and got to get you a publishing <laughs> deal now. We're gonna do something with you. Four years and however long. That's right. Over the years, who has had the biggest impact in shaping who you are today, personally and professionally, and why? Garth Brooks. Because, I mean, he was my dad's companion and collaborator, and Dad and Garth met. Pretty early when Dad started really figuring out how to write a song, you know. It was really neat because when I was little, Dad started pursuing his songwriting with a passion. And I watched the process that he went through to become a great writer. He was a good writer when he started. I mean, anybody that's gone through that kind of pain, he's got something to say. Mm-hmm. You know, burned 60% of his body, and that was just the physical pain. Mm-hmm. But he uh, he wrote every day. And... He was really very driven, and so he he loved George Strait, just loved George Strait, as most of us do, King Strait, you know. So one day, Dad was at, he had a champion in this gal named Peggy Bradley, and she was amazing. And she was at the uh, the post office one day, and Bob Doyle was behind her, and Bob was at ASCAP at the time, and they got to talking as people do in lines and. Uh, she said, well, what are you doing, Bob, nowadays? He said, well, I've left ASCAP, and I'm managing this new artist named Garth Brooks. She said, oh, that's interesting. What's he like? And Bob said, well, he's really similar. He likes George Strait a lot. He's traditional that way. He loves George Strait. And she said, well, I'm helping this new writer that I'm really liking, and he's similar, too. He likes George Strait. Maybe we ought to get them together. And so they did, and they started writing every Monday. And you can hear Garth's story of it. He's got a funny story about meeting dad and all this but you know i i was able to to watch the making of a legend Mm. just right there up close and not that i was always around every day but because dad was such a student of what was going on in the industry and just an astute person anyway he would always be so excited about garth's progress and the things Mm -hmm. that he was doing and so he took me we'd go up to East Tennessee, Garth played up there at uh, Bristol, and I think they have every year still they do these festivals up there for music, and Garth was opening for Newgrass Revival, who I didn't know who they were at the time, but they immediately became my new favorite band of all time. So watching Garth to be the opener, I got to see not only how he was able to really captivate that audience just as an an up-and-comer, but then how he was standing back just in awe of Newgrass Revival. Mm. And then later you see that collaboration when he, you know, got them in there to do uh, Colin Baton Rouge. And and that's really neat. And I just loved John Cowan, the, the singer of that band. And, and Garth and I agree, he's probably one of the greatest singers of all time. 
And so just watching Garth as it went, and then, of course, the opportunities that he afforded us. You know, my dad was a disabled construction worker. So he was, we, we literally lived on disability and Social Security for my whole childhood. And um, because of the success of Garth Brooks in the 90s when people were buying physical formats of music, mm -hmm. that's first it was tapes, and then the transition of the format to CDs, everybody bought him again. So mm -hmm. there was millions and millions of units sold, and each unit, back then it wasn't what it is now, it was less. Uh, but right now, every time you buy a physical copy of an album or a tape or you know, there still are tapes, but, you know, physical music, uh, vinyl albums now, each song generates 9.1 cents. So if you're the sole writer on that song, you're making 9.1 cents. If you have a publisher, then you split that in half, typically. If you have a co-writer, you split that in half again. But the bottom line is that it's pennies. You know, it's mm -hmm. almost 10 cents per song, 9.1 cents. Back then, it was like 6 point something cents. But that adds up. You know, mm -hmm. it's a pennies yeah. business, we say. And now, because of the differences in the in the way that music is uh, consumed, the you can if you're looking at a comparison of what the songwriter today is making as opposed to the songwriter then, you basically take what you make on a week or a monthly basis and divide that by 91. And that's really what the streaming model has done to the songwriter part of music now. So you really look at Garth Brooks as a champion, not only of the songwriter then, but now today. Mm -hmm. Like Even with his, you know, you'll hear all kinds of people trying to drag you this way or that in controversy. But if you're just looking at Amazon, you know, Garth makes his music available on Amazon digitally. When you look at that, you know, hearing people from Amazon come out in just recently at the country radio seminar, they, they said every time Garth Brooks is in our office, he talks about songwriters. Yeah, And so even if the the hits that they had, my dad and Garth wrote, Papa Love Mama was their first, I think, big thing together. And then, of course, Ain't Going Down to the Sun Comes Up. Mm -hmm. There's a line in there, girl, you better get your redhead back in bed before the morning. And so people are like, is that line about you? And I laugh and I say, I don't know if it is, but that song sure helped put me through college. So <laughs> That's cool. So it's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. But yeah. even if... Even if Garth was just uh, somebody that my dad had worked with, just as a songwriter and an entrepreneur right now in this time, he would still be probably that big influence for me, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. because of the the influence and the and the inspiration that he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was pretty awesome, actually. When I was I don't know in my teens, I didn't listen to a whole lot of um, country rap, mm -hmm. R and B. Um, yeah alternative but i always i had garth i had all of his tapes you oh know, yeah down the road like yeah his stuff was so good oh yeah and controversial too what he was or just his music everything well i wasn't diving i just listened to the music yeah. you know i wasn't well you deep, started probably. thunder rolls you know that was banned okay that was banned on country radio oh really was I it? Think no. it i don't know if the whole radio did it but it was banned in some places hmm. and and pop picked it up huh the rock stations yeah so you just see, we were talking about this earlier today, or actually yesterday at our conference, Bill Wyatt came, and he was talking about his first uh, taste of success was a big scandal. Mm. And, you know, you hear that, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. It's right, if you know what I'm right. talking about. You, it sure feels bad if it's bad stuff, I right. bet. But, 
But yeah, so, yeah, you know, could, she's just never know. Yeah. All right. So uh, shout out to one of your favorite local restaurants and a favorite nonprofit. And why? Local restaurants? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love a couple of places. There's a new favorite. It's, I think, totally local. It's called Honey Fire Barbecue right over here on West Sounds Nashville. Good. It's amazing. Really, really good. And then also Calypso Cafe. I love mm-hmm. them. There's It's a little chain, I guess, a local chain, but they're here. Their fruit tea is awesome. And um, then a local nonprofit. I mean, there's so many great nonprofits here in Nashville. It's just a really giving place. I think probably the top of the list is Alive Hospice because of the work they do with, they really bring dignity to that transition mm-hmm. of, of that dying, you know. Mm-hmm. I actually came acquainted with Alive Hospice because being a songwriter, they every year they do a thing at the Bluebird Cafe where they have all of January's their fundraiser. And oftentimes they call in. I think the first few times I did the their fundraiser, I was invited by my dad to sit in with him and Richard Fagan, who Richard was my dad's first pro co-writer here in Nashville. And he wrote uh, Grundy County Auction. Mm. Um, so if you hadn't heard that one, go look it up okay, and think about old yeah. Rich Fagan. But we did that for a few years and then... As people do, both my dad and Richard passed away. Mm. And uh, so I got invited to, to join a round with Benita Hill, who wrote, Bring me to Pinicolas mm. for Garth. And uh, also Becky Hobbs, who, oh my gosh, Becky Hobbs. She's in the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame. She's got hits that she's co-writer on, including Angels Among Us, which is just fantastic song but i think my favorite of hers is called jones on the jukebox i've got jones on the jukebox and you on my mind and they used to be in a trio it was them and this gal named casey jones and they were called a cowgirl a diva and a shameless hussy Hmm. and casey was the shameless hussy so when i do the shows with them i say i'm i'm like the stand-in hussy i guess Uh (laughs) uh-huh Okay, but, so then this was about the nonprofit, so you yeah, had, okay. so that's for a live hospice. So okay. the past few years, we've been doing that together, and every year we bring in signed lyrics and things like that, and we've been auctioning them off for thousands of dollars at, at this thing. And um, it's so neat because you get to hear from the, the director of the Alive Hospice about their mission, which is really to bring dignity to that dying process. Mm. And they bring in homeless people. Mm. You know, they'll... If they're they're dying right. and they need that kind of hospice care, they provide that. And I went through their volunteer training, and I can really honestly say that's a top-notch organization. I learned a lot even just from that training that they give the volunteers. Mm-hmm. I actually cool. wrote a song about it. Did you? Yeah. Um, it's funny because you were as you were talking about that, I was just listening, and I was lost and going, listening to the, the storytelling. You obviously like to still tell stories, right? I mean, you, yeah. you seem to be a good— or either you're, something's interesting because I'm like just, you know, Gift mesmerized by it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, so then I, as you were talking about something about your dad writing, and I'm like, all right, so you obviously were probably in a lot of the country scene here, but then you did a heavy rock metal band. What, did you just want to do something different? Or that's just the people you were around at that point? I think it's that Teenage Rebellion. Okay. Actually, the reason I started playing guitar in the first place was not because of my dad writing country songs. It was because my best friend in high school pretty much made me do it. Mm. She was a bass player, and her daddy, or her name's Leah Paxton. She's married now, got a different name, but 
her daddy was Larry Paxton, who I don't know if you remember back when uh, you had Ralph Emery show and all these great TV shows on country music uh, television stations. Larry was the bass player on one of these shows, so he was like the guy. Every, mm. Everybody would call him in for sessions. And so Leah and I got to play in music, and of course we're teenagers, and she's a punk rocker, so mm. she made me uh, be a punk rocker. So she introduced me to a lot of like uh, Mud Honey and, you know, these that the grunge sound was just coming mm-hmm. about, Smashing Pumpkins oh, yeah. and... I had the Counting Crows album like two years before they even put a song on the radio. That wasn't really, it wasn't a hard rock, but it was it was rock, you know, mm-hmm. and it kind of was like a, yeah. a stepstone there. Yeah. And then um, I was reading a music magazine and I found out about this person named P.J. Harvey. And I was like, well, that's interesting looking cover, album cover. I'm going to go buy that album. This is back when you could actually go to the record store and browse. And I went and bought Rid of Me. My P.J. Harvey. And I started listening to it, and I hated it. I was like, oh, I hate this. And I just kept listening to it. I hate this. Oh, wait, I don't hate this anymore. I love this so much. Mm. Ah! And so I started playing P.J. Harvey, and that was good because she's very rhythmic. Okay. And the guy who produced that album was Steve Albini, who ended up producing uh, Nirvana's In Utero, Mm. which came out while I was in high school. So I'm showing my influences here, but it was pretty rock. So was she, um, was she rock or alternative? Yeah, PJ Harvey is hard rock. She okay. was that album. And then she did this that. thing called, um, she had another album, which was very inspiring still to this day to me. She had Rid of Me, which was really the, the pr- full production album. But then she had an album that came out about that time called The Four Track Demos. And it's pretty obvious that that's what it was. And so I thought, that's awesome. This mm-hmm. this gal's crazy. She doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. I love that. She's singing about just like being a woman and like just all this stuff is like angsty, but yet like approachable mm-hmm. from all different sides. So she had a couple, she had a radio hit on her following album, but that it was a different style. So PJ Harvey, major influence. And uh, that's probably my gateway okay. into into metal. Yeah, my, I, it's funny. Like I was, I listened to the Poison and all that stuff mm-hmm. in high school. Yeah, and then I was all into the rap. And then my brother in law introduced me to STP. Oh yeah. And then it was like all in that. Like I loved that. It was on. Yeah. And it, but I but I and I guess I could. I didn't. I was never. I can't remember lyrics. Yeah. I didn't listen to lyrics a lot. That's probably why right. I could listen to some of the rap stuff and not be influenced because, you know, now I listen, I'm like, ah. Um, but I've always loved the music. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, even now I'm still cranking up a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah. You know, because Forerunners, they got a good sound system. They do. Like, we really have this, good. We have twin cars. Yeah, yeah. They sound really good. All right. So um, we have talked a lot of music, but maybe there you got one or two more things to add. Um, why... You know, did you pursue music and songwriting versus something else, even though you were all obviously surrounded by it? Yeah. Um, but why did you choose that path and not something else? Well. A doctor or something. Yeah. Well, uh, music chose me. I tried to not choose music. In fact, my dad actively discouraged me from it. He's a good dad in that way. He's like, Mandy, if you can do anything else in this world... And be happy. You should. Because music's hard. (laughs) 
It'll wear you out. It'll <laughs> suck your soul out. It'll this and that. It'll that. It, it's good. It's it can be really good, but it's really hard. And I think part of that was him seeing the industry changing mm-hmm. just right when he was leaving the the biz. That's when 1999, the year I graduated, Berkeley was the year Napster came out. Mm. Oh, yeah. And that was the beginning. If you look at a kind of a chart of sales of music over uh, years, you you see the peak was in 99, and then it just kind of falls off a cliff right then. That's about what happened. Well, I was guilty. I was yeah. in the computer lab graduating. I'm like, all right, let's go ahead and get a bunch of CDs of all. Because actually, I had, I had CDs, mm-hmm. and they were all stolen. Right. And so then I didn't have the money to replace them. So I'm like, all right, then Napster came along. And literally, like, the last few days of college, like, right. I, got, I had my zip drive. Yeah. And I'm, like, zipping, <laughs> ripping songs. And that's people. I mean, we didn't know any better, you no. know? I mean, my cousins come up here. Oh, I love that. I love that Patty Griffin album here. Let me have it. I'll rip it on my computer. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you ain't. No, you ain't. Well, and I think it's, too, it's about once i moved here Mm -hmm. and then you know once i met ashley at the time who was making it and other people that were you know pursuing music you kind of it changed your mind a little bit of going yeah yeah i probably shouldn't be burning all these cds because this is how people are making a living you know well it seems harmless you know when it's just Mm -hmm. one person doing it but i think it 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 really is a cumulative effect because it's like that whole you know well if we all do it then that's Mm -hmm. not good Right. I wrote a little funny parody about it because I started thinking about it. Because you don't want to vilify your fans and you don't want to make people feel bad, really. But some of the best lessons I've ever had in my life were getting a little bit embarrassed over something, you know. So I think about that, too. But I wrote this story called How is a Song Like a Gumball? And it's this little made-up story about this gumball machine sales guy that he's got gumball machines all over town and somebody figures out you can push this little lever on the side and you don't have to pay for the gumballs and what does that do at first he didn't notice it too much and then he starts kind of noticing it and uh pretty soon he's he's getting angry he's like trying to tackle the little Susie q who's running up there trying to get a free gumball and Mm -hmm. make an example of her and you see some of that same analogy in our kind of industry-wide struggle to to show people the value of music, but not even that, just to um, just to help people see the impact that one individual right. can have. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it shows you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it shows me. I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist. I tried to be an archaeologist. I just you know thinking about it, but I never studied it enough to really pursue it. And then by that time, it was too late. Mm-hmm. I do admire archaeologists a lot. It's kind of neat. I met a Eddie Schwartz who wrote, hit, hit me with your best mm-hmm. shot. I was talking to him, and he's like, no way. You like archaeology? That's what my son does. I was like, no way. It's like being a rock star to me. Yeah, that's cool. It's kind of neat. All right, so um, what has your music career looked like over the last decade? Well, let's see. Unexpected, really. Um I've been a pro songwriter, I guess, about 15 years. Started out with Sony as a writer there with the co-pub under my dad and Sony. And then I had Beer Run came out, and that was like, oh, wow, this is easy. I had a big hit, you know, and then it's not quite so easy, especially when you have one quick like that. Mm -hmm. I think that throws people off. But uh, it really makes for good catalog when you just keep grinding and keep grinding with your songwriting. So... I, I kind of learned the ropes that way at Sony, and then I moved over to Magic Mustang, got signed at the same time as Jason Aldean over there, and got to watch his career take off just amazingly. 
he's really a great artist too just a wonderful person as well and then after that i went off to an independent had a little bit of a taste of a record deal and that was an interesting lesson and then went to uh, another independent and by then kind of the the uh, industry had changed and my husband was like uh, you know when you're out I was hosting a writer's night during one of my last publishing deals. It was a big one, too. All over town, people would come. We had everybody from John Michael Montgomery to Joe Nichols to Kid Rock to John Rich was in there all the time. And it was kind of a cool happening place. Mm -hmm. And um, everybody would come in and ask me these questions, like business questions or or, uh, songwriting questions. And my husband was like, you know, you're answering these same questions all the time. Why don't we try to figure out some way you can actually make a living doing that as opposed to just all you know you're mm-hmm. you're out and we're trying to have a good time and you're sitting there like holding court answering questions i was like yeah i never thought about that so we built this thing called called it hillbilly culture to start with and um it was really the first attempt at entrepreneurship we built this on online uh community very low-fi at the time but it was our own proprietary website that we had built and we just started helping people and over the years it's grown into this wonderful community it's got members all over the world and now it's my publishing house is called hillbilly culture and the community is called songpreneurs Mm -hmm. and it's really what it is it's a songwriter entrepreneur and over the course of this i i kind of tackled this whole idea of what does intellectual property mean to the songwriter and I had a degree from Berkeley and I had studied it on my own but I'd never really I always thought copyright oh that's something you do with your song you know okay it's actually a lot more than that when you break it down at what it means to the writer when you create it it's actually your engine to monetize your your work it really is the whole engine of the business and so in thinking about that I broke down and kind of made a a workshop about it I started teaching it. At first, it was just with a flip chart. I just draw in circles and showing people how here's the song, and now here's the songwriter publisher side. Mm-hmm. And because of that real simplistic way, and beginning from the beginning, what I realized was, you know, most people don't know this stuff. Like even people who are mm-hmm. like really high up professionals in some specific field in this business, they don't know this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm talking even people who are like copyright ministers of countries don't mm-hmm. think about it this way because it's not the legal way you normally think about it as mm-hmm. a lawyer or as a as a as a publisher even you probably simplified it so much where you got I did. The, the legal aspect it's like overwhelming don't even, yeah let's just let's just do this right try to understand it exactly right. i was like i don't understand i got to understand it if i'm going to explain mm-hmm. it so i broke it down so simple and i guess hillbilly ease that people get it and so what's really fun is and I think it's part like a comic uh, relief too, because just mm-hmm. I, I just kind of say things. I use these like cowpoke analogies or whatever. But I've been on panels with, uh, well, at the United States Patent and Trademark Office, they called me in to their copyright seminar in 2017 up in D.C. The panel I was on, it was one of the head uh, litigators from the RIAA. It's Victoria Sheckler. He's awesome powerhouse attorney then we had one of the top lawyers for the national music publishers association the top guy from the digital media association gregory barnes and then Stephen real who works up there at the uh, 
he was at the USPTO, but now he's at the copyright office and me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like looking around like, what the heck am I doing on this panel? But the way that, that I break down the copyright, it was funny because the, the dignitaries that were there kept coming up to me after. And the people I was on the panel with were like, well, as Amanda said, you know, this is what we do with this. And it was kind of cool to see that. Mm-hmm. I felt really respected and so uh, my career trajectory i came from being a hillbilly songwriter performer to a they call me a non-attorney song a non-attorney copyright expert so building on that i ended up now i'm helping to pilot a program for the united states department of state internationally they have a thing called the arts envoy which has been around a very long time it's a wonderful program of arts diplomacy Basically, through art, you go and make friends in other countries, and you share your cultures with each mm-hmm. other through the through your art. And so, I introduced two different folks at the State Department. One of them in that arts, the cultural side of things, Department, the Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs, and then this other office is called the Office of Intellectual Property Enforcement, which is like the IP police, basically. And I thought they'd know each other because, you know, I was like, oh, you both work for the State Department. You must know each other. Well, no, they don't. It's mm-hmm. like thinking everyone in Rhode Island's friends is right. not really the case. So they start talking back and forth. And a year later, they circled back around to me and said, hey, Williams, we want you to pilot this program combining art and IP education. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Nice. So they sent me to Romania. The first first out of the gate, we went to Romania. And it was awesome. I love Romania, by the mm-hmm. way. It's cool. So we're about to go to Jamaica, it looks like. I'm going back to the USPTO. And I'm starting to tour in earnest here in this next year. Mm. So about to get out on the road doing my artistry. That's cool. So that's kind of a long-winded yeah. thing that I just answered. But I've got a, our song Beer Run was nominated for a Grammy for a Best Vocal Collaboration. That was Garth and George Jones, mm. and that was back, gosh, when I first got started, 2002. Or no, it was before that. Anyway, I don't remember the year. we have to look it up. Yeah. But um, so that, and then um, I, I had cancer. Mm. Just kind of a little side note. Beat that stuff. Good. And, uh, so that's been crazy. But it just makes you appreciate life, yeah. you know. So yeah. singing and playing and talking is what awesome. I've been doing. <laughs> Sounds like fun. You got a lot going on. Yeah. Um, all right. So how has living in Nashville made an impact on you professionally and what has been challenging about the music scene? Gosh. Well, Nashville, which one? You know, Nashville's changed a lot over the past few years. Mm. And I kind of, being a country girl, I gravitated to this west side of town because I did live over in Inglewood, East mm-hmm. Nashville. And uh, as a mother, I am... Um, I wanted my kids to be able to play outside without worrying about, I mean, getting shot. I mean, that sounds kind of extreme, mm-hmm. but I actually had a criminal run through my backyard and police chased him out in the backyard. So, yeah, I get shot in the backyard. I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. So I moved out here. And it's kind of neat because the west side of Nashville is kind of like East Tennessee, mm-hmm. just believe it or not. And it's kind of funny because when you move out here, you meet a lot of East Tennesseans mm. that are here. So the topography, it's more rolling hills kind of yeah. thing. So Nashville has been a wonderful base because it's a very creative place. It's like Dad said, when he thought he was an alien until he moved here to Nashville. And then he's like, mm. oh, all these weirdos that they're like me, they live here in Nashville. Right. And so you got people from all over the world that come here. 
And the quality of songwriting here is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Because people really study it, and it's not, you don't expect to just like write one song and know, I've written two songs, and one of them's a hit for George Strait, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what that's what people think, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of funny, because everybody thinks this. You think your last song is your best song ever. So if you're a new songwriter, you've written one or two songs, of course they're the greatest song ever was. You wrote it, mm-hmm. you know? But it's not until you've written 500 songs and heard, you know, the guy next to you on the round in Nashville's 500 song. Right. That you realize, hey, there is something to this. It's work, you know. Right. It should still be fun and joyful like any mm-hmm. uh, vocation, but there's work to it. Yeah, yeah. And Nashville really ki- can kick you in the mm-hmm. behind if you, if you number one, if you come to town and you think you're going to coast through on talent, which I think a lot of us do, you know. I was definitely this like kind of young, arrogant little thing mm-hmm. coming out like I was just going to take over the world right away, you know, and all this. Not so much, you know. And so you just you just learn and you just keep getting knocked down and you keep getting back up and you just you just you're still in Nashville though, mm-hmm. you know. It's yeah. like how bad could it really be? Mm-hmm. You know. Now it's we've got challenges, we've got um you know, changes. Yeah, so that's actually one of my questions kind of leading into that. Sure. So our um so in real estate our our broker, our owners, like we're gonna have more change in the next two or three years than we've had in the last twenty five years. Wow. How has that, you know, in, in the music industry, what do you see over the next like five years? Like a lot of change or has it already changed so much that you Gosh. know, there's just Well, you know, we can we can study history and kind of find some patterns of what's coming about. So if I had to predict what's happening, I think we've got a lot of polarization happening. We've got on one side we've got a lot more of the uh, hip-hop pop influence coming into mm-hmm. country. So what's your thoughts on that? I love it. It's it's a pushing of the envelope, you know? Mm-hmm. If we all stayed the same, we'd be boring, mm-hmm. wouldn't we? It's, yeah. It's funny, though, because like, even as you say that, that was one of the questions I'd ask Ashley, because, yeah. you know, playing poker, all we listen to is old-school hip-hop oh, and cool. R&B. And so when we were talking about that, I said, so how has that influenced you? Um, and he's like a lot in his, you know, uh, era, which I would say we're all around the same age. Yeah. That was an influence. So he's like, naturally, oh, yeah. it's going to bring itself in there. Oh, yeah. And I said, so did you kind of adapt? And he's like, no. He's like, and he didn't say a cocky. He was like, no, we didn't adapt. It's just, that's just what we started writing. And we're like, well, maybe it'll make it. Maybe it right. won't, you know, and then. And he's great at it. And then it's funny. I was listening to, or I was talking to my stepdad the other day and we were talking about country and he's like, oh Yeah. Yeah, all that new stuff. I don't like that, you know. Yeah. And I said, I really, I said, and it, so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. I said, I said, you know, um, Trace Atkins, you're going to miss this. He's like, oh, yeah. I said, so Ashley wrote that. And he's like, oh, man, that was like one of my favorite songs. And I'm like, well, then he's over here writing right. some of the stuff, too. So it's like, you know, it, it's kind of like you got to just appreciate it all. Oh, yeah. You know? So and you take anyways. your influences and you roll right. them together and you make something new. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. I was on Instagram the other day and Bobby Bones posted about um, Blanco. Uh, what was his? Blanco. Uh, I forget his last name. Get Up. Have yeah, yeah, it? yeah. And I'm like, you know what song I'm talking about? I think so. And he's from Atlanta. I mean, the song's like, it's got the beat and it's it's country rap, you know? Right. And I'm like, I love this. because. Oh, yeah. I love, you know, still old school hip hop R and B. Right. And then and then you incorporate some music. Like one of my favorite artists is Matt Carney. Yeah. Because I love the lyrics. I love the 
beats and music in it mm-hmm. and his voice too he's kind of got it all oh yeah anyway so i hijacked that but it's just funny because when you said that i was curious what your thoughts were on it you know yeah um no i love it i mean back in my writer's night when we were doing that as before colt ford really got going and he'd come in there and then one of my songs that we did in my in my whatever you call it band metal slash uh goth or whatever you want to call it it was a, a, a spoken word basically i won't call it a rap but that was in okay. the 90s, and then when I would do that at the writer's night, and then there's some more rap songs that I do. And Oh, that's cool. So, you know, you see some of that influence, and if you're trying to just live in a vacuum, I mean, you're not going to be exposed to some of the things that you don't know if you're going to like or not. Mm-hmm. You, you got it. It's like the P.J. Harvey album example. I hated that thing. Hated it. And then I listened to it. I don't know what compelled me to listen to something I hated, but I did. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was I was stuck somewhere, as Garth said, I'm over here working on the car underneath it, and I couldn't get over here to turn the channel, right. and then I end up loving the song after I would have changed it if I could have been closer. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I see uh, coming up. But I also see a lot of the the throwback. You've got, like, when I went to CRS, which is the country radio seminar a few years ago, I kept seeing, like, Midland was coming out at the first time. And those boys are just straight up out of the 70s. And I kept seeing they, these next gals look like the 70s. And I, I really admire Big Machine Records. I think they're doing a lot of really cool things. I really uh, admire Borchetta and watch what he's doing in the industry. And I was like, I came back to my Sombrepreneurs group, and we do these quarterly leadership summits where I'm like, this is what seems to be coming down the, the pike. Mm-hmm. I was like, I tell you what, 70s country is coming up. Mm-hmm. I just guarantee it. Mm-hmm. And so now when you look okay. at armadillos and all these things that uh, yeah. you know the the exhibit at the country music hall of fame even the outlaw stuff mm-hmm. so now you've got things like that and then you've got guys like this independent our neighbor down the road here ryan uh upchurch mm-hmm. you know the redneck uh kid and he's he's doing it independently but he's like really kind of hardcore rap meets you know like the oldest country down home thing you can hear Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no telling. I just really think that um, because of the way that people do consume music now, we've talked about, you know, kind of the dangers of the Internet and, and not appreciating people's property. But at the same time, on the flip side, it's enabled this independence to really thrive and to achieve the same level of distribution. Mm-hmm. That's like actually, even with your podcast. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking is like because... You have more channels to get your music yeah. out. You're less controlled by the few up here, right? So you're actually able to be more of what you like. Yeah. The more of the influences that. And that's are good creating. and bad, yeah. you know, right. because there's so many of us. I think the biggest challenge for anybody that's trying to do music or really anything creatively right now is, first of all, to find that niche, like you've mm-hmm. done with this. Like you have really done an amazing job of finding your niche and finding your brand. Mm-hmm. and just going for it and that's the thing like people are afraid of and mm-hmm. then also afraid of having an actual plan you know one of the things I've, i think it separates people who are creative and then people who are creative entrepreneurs is that plan you got to mm-hmm. have the plan right and and put it down the in focus, paper right yeah so that yeah. you can at least measure it you know you can be objective like it's like, for example, we gave the other day, if I was playing metal music and I was pl- trying to play it to the church ladies, they might not like my music and then I might think I was bad. Mm-hmm. 
But yet, if I'm playing my metal music for the for the metal crowd, well, they're gonna love it, and then I'm gonna be feel validated, and and right. I'll understand. So it really has to do with finding that yeah, audience that responds to that art that's in you. Because yeah. we've all got art in us. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. just yeah. finding it and, right. and nurturing it. That was the, the I think that was an aspect of getting my like I wanted to be an engineer, design cars, and then cool. I wasn't serious in school. Went the business route. Yeah. And then throughout, finally jumped into real estate after several years, oh, and cool. now I love it. But also being able to do this, I was like, and I tell people now, I'm like, yeah, if I just did real estate, I'd be boring. Oh, yeah. It'd get boring. Like if I did the same thing, this gives a different element, a great networking yeah. you know, vehicle, and this was really fun to do, too. Oh, gosh, you know? yeah. And everything you've done, I mean, even the real estate aspect of what you're doing is evident here in this little trailer because... You know, it's this tiny house. That's mm-hmm. that's a trend that's right. coming about, and you you're you're the you're the guy. And well, and eventually, I got to get the air situation figured out. Um, but the idea too is to have real estate closings in it. Oh, so cool! Show up to the house, and we meet in here. That's neat. Find a way. Um, that's super right. neat. So, what are some of the biggest struggles you have had to work through personally and professionally, and how did you come out a stronger person? Okay, professional and personal struggles. Definitely cancer was a big, uh, big deal. And really, I mean, what what I learned through it is that you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, you know. Um, I think that even things that are good can be a challenge with your with your business. I find often people will come and say, well, I could spend more time doing my songwriting if only. And it's and everything. If only I didn't have to take care of my parents. If only I didn't have to take care of my kids. If only I didn't have to work so much at my day job. If only I had better health. And I think that, for me, was choosing early on as a Sony writer to say, no, I'm not going to go on the road. I'm going to stay home with my kids. And I did. And I homeschooled them. Then my whole plan was, when they started high school, I was going to go out on the road. And I had an album I'd recorded in the can. Basically using Martina McBride's band. I did it with Harry Smith and and uh, a lot of the, the folks that were playing with Martina still do. And then the day that my kids started high school, because I told them all along, we're homeschooling, but when you go to high school, it's fine. You go to public school and you can have that, mm-hmm. you know, friends and fun and band and whatever. And the day they started, freshman year, I found out I had cancer. Mm. It was breast cancer. So I wanted it out of there real quick, and I had the surgeries, and it, it went on and on. And, you know, just learned that, um, first of all, my relationship with my partner and my husband is rock solid because he's just amazing. Mm-hmm. I didn't, the, the kids didn't miss a beat during that. They just, you know, it was like nothing different for them. It's like, <laughs> it was the same because he's so on top of it. And mm-hmm. and that's another thing that I, it's a blessing about uh, challenges because I don't care who you are. Nobody can do it alone. Mm-hmm. You really need a team. You need a partner, whether that's your 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 partner in life or whether that's somebody that's a business partner that you can look up to. But through all these challenges, the people that I that I serve, you know, in terms of the clients that we have and the friends and the and the the people who have joined the community and who have just maybe come to an event. Mm-hmm. It's it's sometimes the kind the kind word or a smile or a wow you really helped me to understand this thing, that that sometimes can make somebody mm. take that next step, because you don't ever know. I heard a I heard a, a statistic. It said that eighty percent of people that you run into, 
or no, it was 80% of people say that they are experiencing some kind of pain mm. on a daily basis. So when you think about that, that means that eight out of 10 people that you see throughout mm. the course of the day, whether they're driving by the road outside or whether they're somebody you're just walking past in the store, they're in pain. And you, you can make that worse or you can try to make it better. And sometimes it's just a nice smile or right. like open the door for somebody or, man, I, you know, good job on that. Mm-hmm. You know, a nice little pat on the back. You don't know the effect that that can have right. sometimes on somebody. Mm-hmm. So I think I've just learned, you know, I love Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly mm-hmm. Effective People. And so I always bring his teachings into our group. And um, I just think the biggest one for me is helping somebody to have a better day and really trying to understand people and give a, give it as a form of service. Mm-hmm. And it's like uh, Lamont Dozier said, the great Motown writer, he said, when he started thinking about his work as a form of service to humanity, he really started having success as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Mm-hmm. Because if you're all, you know, me, me, or, right. ask, you know, I've, I've got this aspiration, or I've got to get to here, well, you miss the journey. Mm-hmm. And that's like where the, the songs are. If you're like the Minosaur. Yeah. I think that was uh, my, Minosaur. my boys will know um, who Dolly <laughs> is because of all of her books. Oh, yes. You know? Which that's even an example just in that, you know, yeah. like if she was, say, just about music, you know, look at right. the influence she's having in people in Tennessee. Imagination you know? Library. <clears throat> I just read amazing. A, I read one uh, today, actually, before I headed here, we oh, put her boy down for a nap. And uh, and he'll, and we've talked about Dolly on the back, you know, like, oh, yeah, she's the one that got the book. You she's know? So amazing. It, it, it's cool. It's she's amazing. an angel. Yeah. And the books are great, you know. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um. Oh, so speak to me about like. Um, new songwriters moving to Nashville and stuff like the importance Mm -hmm. of a mastermind or Mm -hmm. coaching, you know, like being in a group, like, sure. I mean, there's great groups. There's, you know, one of the things that arts and business council did a study and they showed that one of the main criteria of a successful arts entrepreneur is access to a feedback group, people who are going to give you honest feedback. And so, you know, it's scary as an artist because when you expose your songs to people, you're afraid sometimes or they're going to take part of it or they're going to not like it or what if, what if. But really, that's part of what makes you a better artist. And so I think that as a new person moving into any situation, you want to learn the foundation and some specific knowledge about what it is that you're trying to do. A little bit of the history of that thing. Not that you're trying to make make it over you're trying to redo the history mm-hmm. but you need to know a little foundation so that when you know you should know who hank williams is you should know who georgia jones is you should know who dolly parton is if you're moving to nashville it's just polite mm-hmm. just you know it's like if i'm going to jamaica i better know Bob marley and mm-hmm. really more than that i'm trying to learn as much as i can before i go to these other places so same thing applies and it really is it boils down to specialized knowledge and support yep. and then just discipline you know, that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. It's like a bad word. Yeah. Discipline. But it, it really is fun because it, it helps you to persevere when, you, when you're when you going through hard times. And as dad would say, don't get too high on the highs, don't get too low on the lows. Because mm-hmm. another thing is that about Nashville, this is why it's so important to have a plan. Everything's an opportunity here. you got opportunity to go here. The finest 
quality live music in the world every night of the week. But if you do that, you're not writing enough songs, most likely, or you're not mm-hmm. practicing enough, or maybe you're drinking too much, or whatever right. it is you're doing. Right. So it's got to be some balance. Everything can't be an opportunity because if you're yes, yes, yesing, you could be walking around in a circle all day. Mm-hmm. So what you got to do is you got to evaluate what's the most important things for you, and it should be at the top of that list if you're a if you have a family that top of that list it has to be the family has to be there mm-hmm. there's so many you know broken families mm-hmm. around it's just sad yep. and and i learned that lesson because of my dad he really kind of left my mom and i and as much as i appreciate his sacrifice it really hurt mm. and so that's part of my decision to not leave my kids mm. to actually go the opposite way yep so as nashville's been developing and changing i've kind of been out here in the woods a little bit I'm just starting to tiptoe back down there and into Music Row area, and I'm like, where am I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not Kansas anymore. Right. But uh, but it's cool. I mean, things, you know, not everything stays the same. Yeah. You gotta, right, you gotta right. Keep going with it. Exactly. Change can be good. It can be tough. You That's know. right. Um, all right. So if you could sit down with your younger self, what is some wisdom you would impart? Oh my gosh, I'd probably smack myself in the face. Um, no, my my younger self. I would say slow down. Um, I would say stand up straight and hold your shoulders back. I would say... Good posture. Yeah, that's right. I would say um, people don't think about you as much as you think they do. So whether that's good or bad, don't get too hung up on something you did that maybe you shouldn't have done or maybe you wish you had have done. It's, It's just... Everything can be a learning experience and just be where you are when you're there. Give the people that are around you the most love that you can. And just give the most of yourself as if it, it's service, because it is. Mm-hmm. And people don't uh, people don't become who they are overnight, so just, just practice daily. And those things build up, you mm-hmm. know. Every, every day, if you can do something that you love if you can write for five minutes a day or practice your singing for five minutes every day just think about how much time that is in a year yeah and think about how much further ahead you'll be next year if you do that five minutes a day it seems like nothing yeah it adds up right compound interest it really adds compound up compound investing in yourself that's right that's yeah. right all right so from the great words of paul and timothy 4 7 i've fought the good fight i've finished the race i've kept the faith when your journey is over what legacy are you hoping to leave Gosh, I just think um, legacy-wise, just art, just purposeful art. Something that makes people feel connected to God, to each other. Mm. You know, whether that's a song or whether that's um, my curriculum or whether that's uh, something I've said to somebody. Hopefully, people will, you know, in terms of legacy, I hope that I can help leave something that makes this world better. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that could be yet. It's a good question. I think you're doing it right now. <laughs> and even as the new whatever you're over and going to Jamaica, you know, that yeah. I'm sure that'll be a huge impact, you know. That's neat. All right. So now we're going to do the uh, National Real Estate Minute. Okay. So how long have you lived in Nashville? Uh, we moved down here in 1989. What made you choose Nashville? It's Music City. 
Your dad. So your dad had moved here. Mm-hmm. First. My dad. Dad came down here from East Tennessee in '85 and started basically kind of living in hotels, and then he got him an apartment on Music Row. And um, then we came down here, and he called it the Roach Motel. Hmm. Once I moved down there. Yeah. Oh. Well, we didn't move to the Roach Motel. He was living okay. there. It was like his bachelor pad. Oh, gotcha. And oh, then when, I see uh, what you're saying. He didn't want y'all to come there, uh-uh, right? No, because it was it was rough. And, okay. and you know, he was living on Social Security, and they oh. were stretching it thin doing that, even having our house up there in a place here. Mm-hmm. So he shared it with a guy from East Tennessee, Benny Wilson, who then, was in. Yeah, that sounds familiar. He was in Janie Fricky's band. Mm. It's pretty neat. But yeah, that's why we chose here. Just uh, where else were we going to go? It's Nashville, yeah, right? Music City. All right. So, what community did you land in, and why that location? We started in Green Hills because of the schools. We looked around, and I ended up going the private school route. But um, you know, that was close to Music Row, and I went to University School. Mm-hmm. And then, as far as out here in West Nashville, um, even the public schools here in Metro are good if you got a, a plan. Like, there's these academy programs that even a school like Hillwood over here, which you'll yeah. read horror stories about Hillwood oh, High School. Really? Oh, yeah, but bottom line is that it's a very diverse school, a lot of international students there, um, but it's almost like multiple schools within one place. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to, uh, you know, do sports, you can do that. If you want to do drama and art, you can do that. There's all these opportunities through the city to go and explore what mm-hmm. it is that you're good at or what you want to be good at. Everything from they can graduate with a, a pilot's certificate, the fly mm-hmm. plane at some wow. of these schools. So Nashville's really got a cool program. You know, you hear good and bad about it, but even a school that's got like a, you know, like a, whatever, a C grade, mm-hmm. you can really, through a plan, you can actually really thrive. And my right. kids did. Right. They absolutely loved it. I was cruising through there the other day and drove by there, and I love that whole area. Oh, yeah. Like the homes are mm-hmm. beautiful. Tell me of a great memory that you often share about Nashville. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, one Is funny there like one. one? <laughs> well, Dad, this was actually Dad's. He used to tell. Um, he was really upset because he was he'd been here a couple of years and he was really trying hard to be a songwriter and he was trying, 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 trying. And he's down there on Music Row and he starts driving up the road and he's. If those of you that haven't been here, there's a couple of one way streets in town and Music Row's one of them. You go up 16th one way and then you come back 17th the other way. Well, Dad goes driving the wrong way up Music Row. And they're like, wrong way, wrong way. And they're like yelling at him, don't go. And so he realized, he pulled over all scared and and turned the car around. And he realized, hey, maybe I hadn't been here long enough. I'm going the wrong way up the one-way street. I got mm-hmm. to be here a little bit longer. Right. So that's kind of the funny thing. Nashville, right. you know, they say it's a, it was a five-year town, they say then. It's maybe a 10-year town mm-hmm. now, as we say. But, you know, it really is. You come here and you integrate yourself into the community. You're going to meet your biggest supporters probably at the grocery store or right. at the at the ballpark or something well now in 10 years it'll be a different town true you know with all the change right yeah um all right so what do you look for in a good real estate agent for a good real estate agent somebody that listens somebody that wants what'd you say sorry i was yeah <laughs> <laughs> when people say that i always say that that's great i love that <laughs> somebody that that uh, you know listens to what i what's important to me about the location that i'm looking for and that has a good wide knowledge of the different neighborhoods and the areas where that might exist. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I've used the same realtor since I've been here in Nashville, but 
the you know it's relationship based like mm-hmm. anything else you meet people and you like them it's like you being here tonight and you come into the show you're probably going to meet people that end up when they're moving here they're going to be calling you trying to figure out where they should move to mm-hmm. you know we've got actually what's kind of neat about the uh the intellectual property world that i'm in is the copyright and the trademark and the patents and stuff you know you guys that are the the real estate agents you know a a lot about that because you're dealing with the real property, mm-hmm. the land and the and the houses. And actually a lot of our members like we've got a gal who is uh her her and her partner have a brokerage out in uh, Tucson and Phoenix mm. and they have a whole bunch of agents under them and and she actually uses social media. She's one of the top I think listed one of the top 10 social media people in Tucson. Really? Leanne Savage, yeah. Hmm. So you get, you know, I think that's important, you know, yeah. with with so, anybody just listening. Right. And the relationship. Yeah. yeah. I agree. All right. So what advice would you give to someone looking to move to Nashville? Just um, if you're looking to move to Nashville, do your research about the different areas and then just come here. Because, you know, it's like looking, trying to look to go to Romania. Like mm-hmm. you never see the real side of things from any kind of official brochure or pamphlet or anything else you got to talk to a bunch of people right and people will tell you you know if you're if you ask enough questions in in the right way and actually listen to what people say you'll find the place that's right for you mm-hmm. you know just getting involved with the community activities showing up mm-hmm. being friendly Nashville's a real friendly place and um, people will people want to help cool all right. Well, that's all I got. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining me in the Rambler and uh, tell the audience how they can find you, connect with entrepreneurs. Sure. And- yeah, we've got um, AmandaColeenWilliams.com is my artist website. And then I have the venue here. It's the 7695. Our website's 7695.us. And then for songpreneurs, it's S-O-N-G-P-R-E-N-E-U-R-S. So like songwriter, entrepreneur. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Did you want me to play a song for you? Yes, if you don't mind. You want me to play your guitar? You can, yeah. All right, that's what I'll do. All right, sounds good. Thank you. Well, that was a lot of fun. Hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did. Next week, make sure to tune in to get to know Ryan Lampa. He is the founder of People Loving Nashville. He noted he almost went to college. He ended up living the touring life for 18 years instead. In the middle of touring while church hopping and trying to figure out how to change the world, God put him in a headlock and showed him a place that is in need, his backyard. A homeless outreach emerged and has changed much since. He came off the road two and a half years ago to teach college kids and just recently left teaching to focus mainly on the ministry. And I had a great time getting to know Ryan and actually after we uh we did the little podcast which was um like right at the beginning of summer um I ended up serving the homeless with uh with people loving Nashville and had a great experience um so you'll enjoy definitely getting to know him so make sure to tune in next week for that as always thanks for your time to listen to Nashville Untold I know there's a gazillion podcasts out there Um, So to take a little time to listen to this is much appreciated. And hopefully if you are around Nashville, you're learning a little bit more about opportunities to serve and 
you know, different things about people around the city, some businesses that you might uh, go eat at. Um, now you know a little bit more about the owners. So uh, make sure to scroll through some of the past podcasts if you're just now finding this. And feel free to share and um, subscribe. And, and always, uh, if you've got a second, leave a review. The sponsors for the podcast are the one and only me, Andrew Buckwalter, with Buckwalter Impact Group of Benchmark Realty. If you have any real estate needs in Nashville, if you're looking to buy or sell or looking for investment properties, make sure to give me a shout. I love doing the podcast. I love meeting new people. I love sharing the stories and sharing what others are doing in Nashville. But first of all, I love real estate. So I am here to help you. If you have any lender needs, make sure to give Brandon Hutchison a shout with Legacy Mutual. And if you are in need of a good title, David Weber with Limestone Title and Escrow would love to have your business. And now sit back and enjoy this uh, fun song from Amanda. This song is Love Holiday. I wrote it with Alan Bennett, and it is on my, it's in my Story of Love show, on the Story of Love album, so it goes like this. Holiday. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to Nashville Untold with Andrew Buckwalter. We encourage you to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a single episode. To be a guest on the show or to share your thoughts, send us an email to podcast at andrewbuckwalter.com. Until next time.